Hey, it's Sam, and this time I'm coming to you from Beltsville, Maryland. The second season of Relatively Prime couldn't have happened if 340 people hadn't seen it on Kickstarter and thought, hey, that looks cool. People like Andrew Schmidt, Nathan Rowe, Kitty, Colin Beveridge, and Rebecca O'Malley, as well as my Kickstarter producers, Daniel Murphy and Edmund Harris. And now it's your chance to do the same thing. Because right now, we're trying to raise the money needed to do Relatively Prime Season 3. So if you want 12 more, that's right, Season 3 is going to have 12 episodes, one a month for the next year. If you want 12 more episodes of Relatively Prime, head over to relprime.com slash kickstarter. That's relprime.com slash kickstarter. One more time, I really, really want you to go there. relprime.com slash kickstarter. And throw the podcast a few bones. There's nowhere else you can hear the mathematical stories Relatively Prime provides, so please help us keep doing this work. Finally, I wanted to tell you about something really cool, a mathematics coloring book, created by Alex Bellos and Edmund Harris, both of whom you have heard on Relatively Prime, Patterns of the Universe, A Coloring Adventure in Math and Beauty, or Snowflake Seashell Star if you're in the UK. It's one of the most fun and engaging ways to connect with mathematics that I've ever seen. And plus, it's just really fun. Grab it where you typically find books, or I'll be sure to provide you a link to buy it on relprime.com. And now, for relatively prime, f theta equals 1 minus sine theta. If you ever want to conduct a social experiment on the status of mathematics in the world, just get yourself a dating profile and mention that you're a mathematician. The messages that you will get will be illuminating. I got up to AP Calc during my senior year of high school, cheated off my best friend on all the tests, and still got 70s in the class, and swore off math from there on. I hate to break it to you, but while I appreciate math for its logic and beauty, I don't think I'll ever like it. Too many formulas. Come on, people. Why would you send that to someone who says that they love mathematics? <sighs> and even when the people aren't saying that they outright despise my favorite subject, the messages still leave quite a bit to be desired. I'm awful at math but it fascinates me, much like historical linguistics and conjugating Russian. It wasn't all bad. I once did receive this message. I also really like math. Spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to get people to like it more. But come to think of it, I don't think we ever actually went on a date. I really shouldn't be so negative about this. I've been told by more than one person that being a mathematician makes me sexy. Really, they said it. More than one person. It's so validating. And I doubt that anyone has ever turned me down for a date just because I love mathematics. But given how many times I've received messages with gloomy words about math, and how often on a first date some of the first words out of my companion's mouth is how much they hate math, I can't help but wonder if mathematics has impacted my dating life negatively, if only in the smallest way. And you know what? If mathematics has worsened my dating life, I can't help but feel that it owes me something to even those scales. Of course, mathematics has never let me down in the past. And I really doubt that it's going to start now.
This is Relatively Prime, dating in the mathematical domain. I am Samuel Hansen. So this time around, we're talking mathematics and dating. And not just how while me and mathematics are totally in a committed long-term relationship, we've decided to keep it open. So I can still read about sociology if I want to. And other people, they can help provide for mathematics' theorem-proving needs. No, this episode is about how mathematics can not only even those dating scales, it can tip them so far that we all end up owing math a Wookiee life debt. And that's, that's a big deal. Wookiees live like 400 years. We have stories about how mathematical thinking, well, to be fair, economic thinking, can help you date better. How mathematics underpins one of the biggest dating sites in the world. And finally, how mathematics can help you take things long term. Back in 2009, when I decided to start podcasting, you better believe that one of the reasons was so that I could brag about it on my dating profiles. But the number one reason I decided to become a podcaster was so that I would have an excuse to talk to celebrities. And while I doubt my first guest considers herself a celebrity, if I have a tote bag with the name of your show on it, you better believe that you're a celebrity to me. My heart is beating. ID3 editor of choice. Oh, I was just doing it straight in uh, straight in iTunes because it was just like small single song things mm. to making sure they are in the right albums. For your own library. Yep. <laughs> That's a great way to pass time. <laughs> like if you wish you had a job doing like data entry for uh, telemarketing firms closest you can get. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was it was great. Uh, but we should we should probably uh, actually talk about what I Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about feelings. So if I could uh, just get you uh, say your name, basic introductory information. Sure. My name's Andreas Lindsay, and I host a podcast called YOY. I'm Andreas Lindsay, and this is YOY. Hey, uh, just, just so I, I have this for my listeners, what is YOY? I like to say it's a podcast about where love and sex meets technology. Tonight's show, what happens when you and a friend realize you've gone on Tinder dates with the same people, but had... Very different impressions, but really it has turned into almost like a personal diary. Coming up on the show, I get ready for my appointment to have a small plastic device inserted into my uterus. It's called an IUD. A way to connect with friends and talk about feelings. My friends Sandy and Holly join me in studio to discuss that guy your friends warned you about. You can't stop trying to make it work. So why did you agree uh, when Planet Money called you up to take dating advice from an economist? I feel like with dating advice, pretty much no one can do worse than the existing dating advice that's out there. (laughs) (laughs) Like, if you ever want dating advice, don't go to Barnes & Noble and go in the love and relationship section. You will find nothing helpful there. So I was willing to give just about any kind of advice a try. 
I, you know, you, you, there's nothing that makes you feel more like a failure than putting yourself out there to that extreme and saying, hello, public, all of public radio world, please give me help. But I'm glad I did. Do you want me to tell what happened? Well, yes, yeah. So as you know, I showed up at Planet Money, and The Economist listened to my problem. And the problem was one of kind of— Oh, we should of... probably identify who The Economist is. Oh, yeah. Um, Tim Harford. Tim Harford is the Financial Times undercover economist, as well as the presenter of the wonderful BBC numbers and stats in the news show, More or Less. Yes, I am a loyal listener. Um, And he's this— very lovely, energetic British dude who kind of knows a lot about everything. And he looked at my problem as, I guess, a math problem and said, what you need is to improve your your likelihood of having a good date. And how could we do that? And what we did is we devised this filter, which was asking guys if they would go on a Skype date with me. And I, what I discovered in my research, <laughs> just fun to think of dating as research instead of just what it actually feels like. Um, <laughs> I, I discovered that that worked amazingly. Anyone who would say agree to go on a Skype date with me was someone who was taking this process seriously. And it forced me to examine the contenders more closely. Because in a lot of ways, going on a Skype date is more awkward than going on a real world date. A real world, world date is something you could practice or you know, get somewhat good at. But a Skype date Everyone sounds awkward on Skype. There's this, like, delay in talking. <laughs> um, you have to exchange your username, which you probably created in 2007. I was really delighted that this, this started to work for me. And I do recommend it to girls. I've learned uh, in heterosexual dating not to recommend it to guys because women think they want free video chat services. Oh, oh. Yeah, it doesn't really work the other way. <laughs> you want to so... Skype with me? What? <laughs> So you mentioned that uh, you uh, you and Tim uh, working together to create create a filter. Do you remember uh, a little bit about why he said you you needed some some filter? Like what was the, what was the actual problem, the kind of economic or mathematical problem that uh, he thought the filter was needed for? Hmm. Well, in New York City, women are definitely at a disadvantage, and that's that's the math problem I come up against a lot. You know, if someone tells me they're single and could I introduce them to someone, you kind of come up against this all the time, which is that there are just more single women in New York City than single guys. And I think the inverse is true in, for example, San Francisco. There are more single guys than single ladies. And actually, one dating startup, The Dating Ring, did an exchange between the two cities. But for the most part, people don't want a long-distance relationship. And uh, you just have to kind of live in this just statistical disadvantage. So the guys, they, they know that they can just replace me in a second. They meet me and they're like, oh, I can find some other, you know, cute, young, creative person who lives. Maybe she'll even live closer to me <laughs> or maybe she won't have a dog. So there's this this uh, if you have too many options, it gets harder and harder to pick. And so I wanted to narrow down the guys who are taking it pretty seriously. Uh, you, you said that it it worked pretty well. Uh, and, and tell me a little bit about what the actual Skype dates were like. Well, in the end, I was able to corner three guys into a Skype date. And the first guy was someone who I would have definitely gone on a real-world date with, too. We matched on Tinder, and Tinder has this wonderful mutual friends algorithm. So we had just random friends in common. Like, we had friends from my life since college, friends from in college. I realized we probably went to college together. And 
yeah, he was really cute. I remember exchanging like really personal messages right from the get-go, kind of telling him about a bad day, which normally doesn't happen on Tinder at all. So first guy, A+, I was really happy he agreed to do this because it proved that as much as I seemed to like him just from some awkward photos of him standing with his arms crossed, that <laughs> that, that would play out in real life. Yeah, this is a great first Skype interview. <laughs> you think you're thinking of it as an interview? Um, I don't know. I don't know how to think of it. Like, how do you think about it? I don't know. I guess I was really hoping for more small talk. I hoped I hoped that I would be like, so what was your major? Oh, what do you do on the weekend? Oh. I was hoping that we would we would we wouldn't go so deep. But I'm into that. Cause I, but I no, we can go like <laughs> we can like take a step back and like sort of reset. <laughs> I wanted just, just really awkward small talk, like yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then number two was this guy from Kansas City, Missouri. And I was really charmed by kind of mem- remembering my time when I lived there with him. And he told some like outrageous stories. And he he was the kind of guy that I feel like I've dated a lot in my dating career, where he, he'll say things like, yeah, I used to be a drug dealer. And you would get, <laughs> you, you, I worked at the police department to throw massive raves. And you're just like, wow, this is a life that's so different than mine. I want to understand it. He had to be really convinced to actually do the Skype dates. He, I, I later learned he was kind of a online dating player. So to actually throw an obstacle up on this guy, I had to really work hard to get him to agree to do it. And then when he did, he was very like, it was almost like a negging technique where, I had I had forces the pot, and so I had to be extra nice to win him back over. Uh, so anyway, um, what are you up to today? <laughs> um, besides, Skype dating. Besides, uh, yeah. Uh, How many of these do you have up today? Uh, just you. <laughs> okay. Um, although I was I was like trying to tr- look for other people, but it's just hard to find a match on Tinder. Like, I don't know, because you don't know anything about anyone, so you're just basing it off. I don't even know what I'm basing it off. I guess mutual friends, but, like, what do mutual friends even mean? I think it's become really devalued over time. I think I'll just Facebook friend anyone now. Oh, okay. I don't have a radio show, so my Facebook friends are people I actually know. (laughs) And then the third guy was so boring. The third guy agreed to do this. But the more we talked, the more I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad I did this because if I were on this date, it would have ruined my day. What is us getting coffee or a drink about if we decide to do that for you? Well, I try not to think too far beyond the the moment of the day. But um, ideally, I guess... (laughs) Again, I don't look, try to look too far in the future, but um, I guess I would say I'm looking for a girlfriend. He just wasn't bringing it. And I feel like that's an energy thing that I could have gone through the scheduling drama with to figure that out in person, or it was great to just find it out over Skype. And uh, so then from there, two guys got real world dates. The charmer storyteller guy got filtered out in real world conversations because he because he started telling me about how he wanted a second MFA oh, in yeah. writing. <laughs> no. <laughs> and then guy number one just started, we just started going on regular dates and a relationship built really sweetly over time. And, you know, there were 
I got to know way more than you could ever learn about someone from online dating. And he's probably the most amazing person I've ever met in my entire life. And we just moved in together last week. Well, uh, that sounds like an economist <laughs> uh, really found you love. <laughs> <laughs> Although, the, I mean, I guess the question is, which is more valuable, the economist helping me to devise a filter to take dating more seriously or me putting that intention out into the universe and like really suddenly taking dating seriously because of public radio shows watching? We'll never know. Sure, she might be right. It may have been her intention to take dating more seriously, which found Andrea love. But if we're being honest with each other, we all really know that it was Tim Harford's doing, don't we? We know that. This doesn't mean that she thinks that everyone should take dating too, too seriously, though. Or in other words, we all need to remember dating isn't our job. If you take different people to the same coffee shop, going through the same, like, copy and pasted okay cupid notes like your own presentation of that person is going to get really skewed i think there's something really great about feeling like there's like a story or um some kind of magical happenstance to our dating lives so i, I feel like if you're just plowing through you're going to miss the ability to really stop and notice someone but i there's some personalities i don't think you could make not do that <laughs> there's just like no rhyme or reason to this i think the main thing to do is like if you you should just find a way to keep doing it without hating it too much. There's ways that I trick myself into doing things I don't want to do all the time. And if creating an elaborate formula to date helps you, then that's one way. If like using it as an excuse to keep up with local museum exhibits is a way that you can trick yourself into doing it, that works. If turning your dating life into a podcast works for you, do that. I just think whatever it takes to not totally burn out on this process that can easily burn people out. So if you're someone who wants to be out there dating, and the only way that you can picture yourself doing it is through the use of some sort of elaborate dating formula, then create that formula. There's no right or wrong way to start dating. Maybe in the past, I've created an elaborate dating formula. Or maybe I haven't. Oh, of course that's a lie. I have created an elaborate dating formula. And you know what? I was so happy that I did because it got me out there dating, which is what I wanted in the first place. What really matters is that you don't let this algorithm that you create get in the way of yourself. As long as like you leave your formula, whatever that is, open to breaking the rules somehow and you leave it open to learning about yourself. Because, yeah, the guys who create like the complex algorithm, they think that they're limiting themselves from actually learning more about themselves and being reflective in the process of dating. The best part about dating and breakups and new relationships and all of that is you uh, learn things about yourself. Like what I learned about guy number two about, oh, I can be a real sucker for like, oh my God, you have a motorcycle. <laughs> you almost <laughs> you used to have a pet lion. Like you just start, I, I learned about myself that day that like, oh yeah, I can be like too intrigued by someone's very different life experience and forget to like notice if they're listening to me or not. And that right there might be the most mathematical thing about dating there is always something more to learn. And while Andrea and I touched on this during our conversation, I think now might be a good time to talk a bit more about how you can find these people with whom you're going to go on these dates, which are going to teach you so much about yourself. So let's go back in time to 2009 and the 14th interview that I ever conducted. It was for a different podcast of mine called Strongly Connected Components, which featured interviews with people living mathematical lives. 
I am Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 14 from acmescience.com. And this interview in particular was a conversation I had with Sam Yagen then the CEO and co-founder of an upstart online dating site, which was differentiating itself from the competition by putting a real focus on the data side of dating. That little upstart was OkCupid. And Sam is now the CEO of Match Group, which includes Match.com, OkCupid, and Tinder. In other words, where pretty much everyone finds their dates these days. I started out my conversation with Sam by asking him why when they created OkCupid, they decided to emphasize its algorithm and data analysis and general geekiness. We thought that math was really the key to helping make that search uh, for a relationship as effective as possible. You know, obviously other people, you know, pursue the notion that, oh, psychologists might know what's best for you. But we really believe that, uh, and I think most people believe that that's not the case. And we think that using data and math to help navigate that is the, the most effective way to help you find the person you're looking for. Now, your algorithm is very different than, say, an eHarmony or a Match.com, which are, I mean, they're not mathematically very interesting. Uh, can you give us a little bit of an idea of how you uh, set up your algorithm and the way that you feel that makes it work in a better way for people? So we try to model the way dating works in the offline world. And so if one of your friends from college were to call you up and say that he had a great girl he wanted to set you up on a date with, no matter how much you trust him, you probably wouldn't just say no. You'd probably want to ask him questions and learn more about the person before you decide to go on a date. You're going to have a certain set of questions you want answered, I'm going to have a different set of questions that I want answered, although we're probably both interested in the questions that each other has chosen to ask. And so basically what we do is we simulate that question and answer, that conversation that you would have with a friend uh, about a prospective date online. And so, you know, the algorithm really has two parts. The first is the, the notion of having a question and answer model. And then the, fan the fantasy math comes in in the way that we take your questions to the answers, uh, your answers to the questions and really effectively go through the database and figure out who the most compatible match is. With the questions themselves, uh, they are created by your users, actually. What made you decide to uh, let the users have that sort of control instead of defining at least some set of questions that you always want answered? This comes down to a fundamental belief that people are on dating sites not because they don't know what they're looking for, but because they don't meet enough people in the course of their day-to-day -day life. So, uh, you know, eHarmony, of course, takes the opposite approach, which is you don't know doing. You don't know what you're looking for, so you need us. We take the approach, uh, you know, I think quite the opposite, that you know what you're looking for. And so if each user knows what they're looking for, then it's an obvious decision that you have to put the control in the user's hands. The users know what they want. Why would we centralize the process of, of finding the date? That would, make, that would be totally counterintuitive. Uh, one thing that you do over uh, at OKCuba and that I find to be very interesting, and it seems that the rest of the internet does as well because you've been uh, put up at, I mean, on Boing Boing and Slashdot for uh, things like this, is that you do a lot of analysis and one of the most interesting ones that uh, you have done with that is that you've done a lot with photo analysis, uh, analysis mm -hmm. of which type of profile shots 
are going to be most effective. Now, how did you go about setting up an analysis of your user group? So the question was, you know, what's the best photo to use to maximize your chance of success on an online dating site? That was kind of the question that we were trying to answer. And it turns out that lots of people have ideas about this. If, you, know, you can go read lots of blogs and lots of so-called experts who will tell you, oh, this is, you know, this is the right approach. And it turns out that those people, uh, some of them are right, some of them are wrong. Most of them are right some of the time and wrong some of the time. So I think the issue is we wanted to take an approach that was very data-driven. We isolated 7,000 accounts. And, of course, in order to do this, you have to really restrict yourselves to accounts that only have one picture, because if somebody has more than one picture uploaded, then, you know, it's really hard to determine which picture has had the effect that you're, that you're capturing. So we, we chose 7,000 people who had one picture. Then we went through a manual process tagging all of those pictures on a bunch of different characteristics, like whether the person was, you know, had a pet in their picture, whether the person was smiling or not smiling, looking into the camera, looking away from the camera, whatever the case may be. And then we were able to do just, you know, very simple but very powerful analysis, you know, where we basically looked at how many messages the, the accounts associated with those pictures got. And it turns out that the specific attributes of the picture you choose uh, adjusted for attractiveness. So, what, you know, we're, it was really important that we held all people, you know, that had – we were basically not, you know, not getting distracted by attractiveness. We were holding that constant. And it turns out that these specific attributes of your picture can have a huge impact on your success. Uh, when you went about this, what did you uh, find to be the most effective shots for men and women if they wanted to get a bunch of messages? We had, we had several different conclusions. I think you know, one of my favorites was focus on authenticity in your picture. So you know, the way that came out was a lot of these self-portraits that were taken by someone's own cell phone or maybe even, you know, taken by a webcam, which you would normally think of as perhaps being a low-quality picture that might not do well, uh, it turns out actually did very well uh, and did a lot better than the glamour shot that, you know, you might have taken, you know, at a, at a professional photographer with, with your makeup and hair all done up or something. And I think, you know, what comes across there is when you're looking at profiles online, you're not necessarily you know, this isn't a model competition. You're not looking for someone who's perfect. You really want to get a sense for someone and get a feeling that this person is really there, is authentic, and is, uh, you know, really someone who you're going to meet. So I think, you know, don't, don't stress out getting the perfect photo uh, that was taken in a very sort of stale and staged environment. Quite the opposite. Give someone a chance that they, you know, are really – give someone the feeling that they're really getting to know you, and that's going to be really powerful. You spend a lot of times looking at – the messages and the, as you say, conversations that people have with uh, the photo analysis or some of the message analysis that you've done. Now, in what way do you mathematically model the conversation in order to, uh, you know, find out whether it's a conversation or just a message? The, 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 key, the, the key distinctions that we look at, you know, for a message is just, you know, is just a message. And I think, you know, what what that does is it's an important it's an important indicator of just, you know, overall demand sort of at the at, at, at the gross uh, top of the line level. If you're not getting anyone who's sending you messages, then you know you can't be having conversations with people almost by definition. So um, you know we start with conversations and think that that's a very high level way to gauge the success of your profile. You know it's not a result of you know your communication skills or anything like that. Um, then we look at conversations, which is basically a back and forth and back. So it it, it has to be a an exchange that involves 
not just a, a message and a reply, but also an account to reply. So we're trying to get rid of all the people, all the conversations that basically are one person sending a message and then a quick, hey, I'm not interested in the reply. You know, we don't want that account. But we figure if if the reply was itself worthy of a reply, then now you're getting into sort of the, the domain of what you can reasonably call a conversation. Okay. I'm sure that there's been plenty of this uh, data when you look at it that doesn't fit any sort of meaningful curve or any way of actually now analyzing. As a matter of fact, on one of the blog posts that there was a comment about diabolically meaningless scatter plots. And I was, I was wondering uh, which one of the analyses ended up giving you the really the least use useful data, the one that really just made it the hardest to try to get any sort of meaning from your analysis. Well, we, we kind of we kind of circumvent that. So if, if we if we find you know an angle of inquiry that's not leading us anywhere, we pretty much let that go. So certainly by the time something actually gets onto our site, so any of the stuff that you're actually going to have seen, you know, we probably think is is worth looking at. There's countless streams of of, of thought that we've gone down ourselves. Uh, internally, and then finally had to say, you know what, this just isn't working. And sometimes, you know, it can take an entire day kind of coming up with a question, proposing an experiment, crunching the numbers, and then it turns out at the end that it just wasn't that interesting. One one other analysis that you did that was uh, very interesting to me because it kind of jumps in the face of some of the conventions that people have about people on the internet is uh, your analysis of messages themselves and specifically yep. your analysis that said that people do actually like grammar yep. as I was wondering if you'd go a little bit into uh, what you found as far as grammar and as far as messages. Whenever I'm talking about online dating, I first try to think about offline dating because I really believe that there is a pretty strong parallel that online dating isn't a radically new way to date. It's just using a different medium to date. So if you think about when you go to a bar or when you go to a party or when you go somewhere where you expect to meet someone that you might be romantically interested in, there are, there are some basic things that you do to make sure you're putting your best foot forward. That might include taking a shower. That might include brushing your teeth. That might include cutting your fingernails. You want to do these, these, these things that kind of make your, that first impression uh, really strong and at least as good as possible. So I think what we see here in many cases is that that first message has a lot of those same effects. You want to be, you want to be putting your best foot forward in the same way. So what we see is grammar is kind of the equivalent of brushing your teeth online. If you can't you know, find a way to put together a decent sentence, then you, you, know, you have to resort immediately to sort of you know, web speak or, or you know, any of these common abbreviations, then that's the equivalent of not bothering to, to brush your hair before you go out to a bar. It just totally gives someone the wrong impression that you're not serious, that you're not well put together, and you know, they're just going to talk to somebody else. There was a, another part of that analysis that showed that you can also be a little bit too much together, uh, specifically uh, that the length of a first message, anything that's over 360 words will scare people? So again, I, that to me is as a direct uh, analogy to the offline, to, to a bar. Imagine if you walked up to a girl and you're trying to, you know, start to have a conversation with her and you just start talking and talking and talking and talking and you go on for four minutes. 
that girl is going to have turned away and gone on to do something else long, long before. So, you know, again, you don't want to talk someone's ear off at a bar. You don't want to talk someone's ear off in this environment either. You want to give someone just enough. You want that first pickup line to be short, concise. You want it to be interesting enough that the person uh, wants to reply, but not, you know, so long that, uh, you know, the people get bored and, and uninterested. Once again, that was from the 14th episode of the Mathematical Interview podcast, Strongly Connected Components. You can find it over at acmescience.com, which you know that you want to. How else are you going to learn why Sam Yagen decided to study mathematics or how he helped to create SparkNotes? Not only that, while you're there, you can listen to more than 60 other interviews with people who live cool mathematical lives, like mathematicians, authors, filmmakers, and app designers, to name just a few. There's even two interviews with this guy. Because a lot of popular maths books Oh, do you want maths or math in this interview? What would... Whatever is more comfortable for you. You know what? I will randomly flip between the two. So uh, I, I will attempt to alternate, but I can't promise I'll keep track. Uh, so anyway, what are we up to now? I just did the maths. Okay, so yeah, a lot of popular math books. That was Matt Parker. He's a mathematics communicator and author of the book Things to Make and Do in the Fourth Dimension. But don't worry, the book itself is three-dimensional, so you are able to read it. During a recent conversation that we had, math and dating came up, and Matt shared this problem with me that mathematics can help solve. Matt Parker, could you tell me a little bit about how math might be able to help me date better? <laughs> oh my goodness, the mathematics of dating. So well, let's just recap some of the basics here. Have you had a close look at the optimal stopping problem approach to dating? No, I haven't. Oh, okay. Well, here you go. So this this is a problem where a lot of people will start dating and, and one of two things will happen. So some people, when they begin dating, uh, settle too quick. So that they start dating other people and then suddenly they're like, oh, you're the one for me, and, they, and then they settle down. And particularly if you settle down with the first person you ever date, you have no idea what the long-term options were, what other people are like. Other people get addicted. So like people like online dating, uh, they're always like, oh, but there's so many other people out there. Right. What if I could date you know, one more person? What if they're perfect? Right. And they will keep going, 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 and they will never settle down. And so in between, you go, well, there must be the best way to decide when you should settle down while you're dating. And mathematicians have already done this. It, it was uh, done in the middle of the 20th century with the somewhat disturbing name Optimal Stopping Problem, where the, the context was, and originally it was interviewing people for a job, that if you've got a, so you could compare that to dating. If you're interviewing people, you know, dating's a bit like interviewing. You go, right, I've got uh, 10 people, 20 people, however many people I'm prepared to date or interview or outside my office. They're going to come in one at a time. I'm going to interview them, date them, and then decide if they are, uh, meet my, up to my standards or not. But once you reject someone, you can't go back. And so mathematicians worked out initially if you only care that you get the best person or no one. So you want the best person you could have or you die alone. Then what you do is you date the first uh, one over E fraction of the people, which is on the order of, top of my head, 37-ish percent. And then you just date and reject all of them. And at the end of it, you keep dating people until you meet someone who is better than the first selection category you were dating and that gives you about a third again so one of the e chance of coming up with the the best person in your set the problem with that 
is you may miss the best person. Like, what if they were in the first selection, right? What if, what if you, you didn't get them? And so there's another method, which I argue is the superior method, and this is quite a recent one. This was from very early 21st century research, that what you do is you sample the first square root of uh, the maximum number of people you're prepared to go through, and you use the first square root of n as your sample, and then you pick the next person who is as good uh, or better than your sampling, and you can systematically lower your standards if you need to. And so every then same interval, every square root of the total number you go, you drop your standards by one ranking. So for the first batch, you go, I want as good as I've seen or better. And for the next batch, you're like, I want as good as I've seen, better, or as good as the second best I've seen. And then you gradually, your, your standards can taper off. And so if you want some math and dating, I recommend looking up the optimal stopping problem. But don't be satisfied with the old version from the middle of the 20th century. Make sure you use up-to-date current research. When it comes to finding the exact right solution to your dating life's optimal stopping problem, I wish you the best of luck. And if you do find it, well, that means you no longer have to worry about dating, do you? But does that mean that mathematics can no longer help you with your relationships? Of course not. That would be crazy. This is a mathematics show. I am never, ever going to say that. There is plenty of mathematics that deals with long-term relationships and marriages. And some of the absolute coolest comes from this person. My name is John Gottman. I'm a psychologist, PhD psychologist, and co-founder of the Gottman Institute. Psychology was not John's original plan. He studied mathematics at graduate level at MIT. Of course, that is where things changed. And my roommate was studying psychology at MIT. And I had always been interested in applied mathematics rather than pure mathematics. Unbeknownst to me, the math department at that time at MIT has changed since, was completely pure. And I wasn't that interested in my books as a graduate student, but I was fascinated by my roommate's books. This led him to take classes at MIT and Harvard in psychology. And his master's thesis focused on modeling the psychological process called learning to learn. At that point, John transferred not only from mathematics to psychology, but from MIT to the University of Wisconsin, where he earned his PhD. Being trained in both subjects afforded him a rather different perspective than what was common in the world of psychology at the time. When you first uh, started studying psychology, was there much use of, of mathematics in the discipline? Was there much modeling? Was there much quantitative work? Almost none. I mean, there were, the only place where mathematics really entered psychology was in modeling learning processes. And they were usually kind of stochastic models of, you know, pattern recognition. You know, really mostly statistics rather than mathematics per se. So when John started to study relationships, he brought a mathematical perspective. This allowed him to realize he could focus on the relationship as a unit itself, instead of needing to focus just on the people inside of it. This approach springs from John's thought that relationships are one of the emergent properties of our world. They're one of the things which are greater than the sum of their parts. I think that's really what relationships are about. 
they're not really two individuals coming together. They're about what the two individuals build together when they come together as they interact. So the relationship is sort of, you know, the sort of temporal form, the architecture of uh, around time that people create when, as they interact. Now let's think about this like mathematicians for a second. We want to study this object, this relationship between two things interacting over time. How would we go about doing that? Exactly. That's, that's exactly right. We need to build ourselves a model. And wow, wow, you, you are two for two. We really would be best if we built that model using differential equations. And that, that's exactly what John did. And while you might not think of differential equations as being particularly romantic, what if they're interlocking? And what gets interesting is when the two differential equations interlock so that one affects the other. This idea of using mathematical modeling techniques was central to John's most well-known work, the divorce study that he conducted with Robert Levinson. Their initial drive for the study came from wanting to understand emotion, specifically the natural processes through which people communicate emotion. But as with most things, there was a bit of personal drive in there too. Personally, our own relationships with women were not going that well at the time. And, you know, we learned really how to have a good relationship from studying the people we wound up calling the masters of relationships and how they were different from the disasters, which, you know, really we were a part of that group, the disaster group. So, uh, so by doing this research, we were, we were really sort of learning how to live life better ourselves. And that was the major motivation for doing this research. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about uh, the divorce model that you helped construct? Yeah. I, you know, what we were interested in, because, you know, both of us were also clinical psychologists. Um, we we're interested in really describing uh, what was different about the interaction of people who were headed for divorce compared to people who were headed for a lifelong relationship that was mutually satisfying. Essentially, they were looking for traits which exist in happy relationships, but don't in the unhappy ones. To start with, they looked at physiological signs like heart rate, and right away, they found themselves contradicting conventional wisdom. So a common view about relationships was that a happy relationship is full of fireworks and spark and a lot of energy. And what we discovered was that happy relationships are very peaceful and calm. And physiologically, people are close to their baseline when they're, even when they're talking about an area of disagreement. And that's what characterized happy relationships. The relationships where, you know, people's heart rate went up and where there was synchronicity, those were indicative of really distressed relationships, unhappy relationships. So that was the first thing we found. They didn't stop at just physiological reactions. They delved deep into how the participants actually felt. And we had this video recall rating dial where they told us how they were feeling in the interaction. Same pattern there. So not only was the physiology, you know, elevated physiology predictive of demise in a relationship, but it was also reflected in the subjective experience. So now they had some data. 
And that data seemed to indicate which relationships are going to last and which relationships are going to burn out. This is the point in any study where doubt starts to creep in. Are these relationships doomed and we're just measuring artifacts of the process? In other words, they had reached the favorite question of every skeptic everywhere. Was it causation or was it just correlation? Can we get control of these things, get people to calm down and to change their behavior so they look more like the masters rather than the disasters? Would we fix relationships that way? And for the past 20 years, we've been doing those, those experiments, and it turns out, yes, it is causally related. But we're not a psychological podcast here at Relatively Prime. We're a mathematical one. So let's dig deeper into the model that John and his collaborator James Murray created. They used the heart rate and rating dial data mentioned earlier and gave weights to different emotional behaviors, positive for ones that predicted happiness, like shared humor, and negative to ones that predicted divorce, like contempt. Initially, they created two models. Initially, a difference equation model in which we modeled each of these time series very, very simply as having three components. The first component had to do with what each individual brought to the relationship, be it positive or negative. How did things start? So this was a startup constant. The second component dealt with emotional inertia. In other words, how an individual's emotions impacted their own emotions later. Some people really had high levels of inertia. They were sort of like a Mack truck. Once they got into a negative place, they stayed there for a long time. And the final component of the difference equation model was there to account for the partner's influence. Once this model was up and running, John ran into some rather tough questions. The mathematicians turned to me and said, so what, what are the laws of human interaction? <laughs> you know, and there aren't any. While there might not be any hard and fast laws of human interaction, after four years worth of work, John did find one principle which stood out above all others. Negative emotions were much more influential in our predictions than positive emotions. I did say earlier that John and his collaborator tried two models initially. The second one was what's known as an O-drive model. It relied on a threshold measure for emotion before influence would be seen between the partners. The O-drive model turned out to be wrong. <laughs> it turned out that the best fits we got were with the bilinear model, which had fewer parameters. It appears that even a little bit of negativity is a lot. <laughs> you know, there isn't a threshold. So they stuck with the bilinear difference equation model with some refinement to account for the power of negativity. And they used this model to build up their theory of what a healthy relationship was, even though this was the opposite of what they were used to. We were using the math to build theory. John's collaborator, James Murray, was not comfortable with this. You know, he always liked to know what what are you know what are the principles, what are the rules, what's the theory, and this was the only theory that I could come up with. <laughs> it <laughs> took years of thinking to come up with that, but once we came up with that, the data fit really well. As time went on, more discoveries were made, more refinements were added, and John's theory became really well fleshed out. 
One such refinement to the model was the addition of a repair term. This term was there to account for how people in a relationship really do try and fix what's been broken. At least once a certain amount of negativity has been reached. And what we discovered was that the masters of relationship or the people headed for happiness and stability in a longitudinal study like of newlyweds were the ones who began repairing at a low threshold of negativity. And when you look at the math, it really makes sense because when you start repairing, before things get too negative, the amplitude of repair doesn't have to be very big. Whereas if you wait a long time, it's kind of like a car that's moving downhill. Well, it has too much momentum to change direction if you wait too long. And once again, we have a result where the math builds the theory. And not only that, this result is a contradiction of the conventional wisdom of what constitutes a healthy relationship. People say, well, you can measure the success of a marriage by how many bite marks people have on their tongue. You know, they just bite their tongue and endure the negativity. And that's a great relationship. No, that isn't true. People don't endure the negativity. This low repair threshold for the masters of relationships was not their biggest discovery. Neither was their finding that people in bad relationships have high emotional inertia and are therefore less open to influence by their partners. No, their biggest discovery was way more interesting. In happy, stable couples, the influence functions between husband and wife had the same shape. So if you avoid conflict so well that your friends call you Switzerland, data pacifist. And if you yell at your partner, it's pronounced tomato. May I suggest that you marry a debate team captain? But if you only ever throw the second punch, email me. Because what John showed was that your most stable match will be with someone who deals with conflict in the same way that you do. Actually, all had stable relationships if they were matched in influence functions and unstable relationships if their influence functions had a different shape. So somebody who was a conflict avoider and married somebody else who really loved to debate and persuade, that was an unhappy relationship. But that was a real discovery that mismatch of influence functions was what really predicted the demise of relationships. But we must not forget John does have a day job. Without therapy, I might add. <laughs> With therapy, we can really help those relationships. And that's not it. There's recent research by K.K. Tung, which shows that conflict avoiders have the most stable relationships of them all. Plus, according to John... While his work would imply that our most stable match would be with someone who deals with conflict in a similar way, that doesn't mean that we should be searching for people who are exactly the same as us. What you have to learn to do is accept the differences between you. Because all of mate selection is now based on algorithms in which you just look for people who are similar to you. The idea is that if you find somebody who's your clone, you're going to have a happy relationship. And that's just not true. It doesn't really fit the data. Instead of looking for similarities, this is really saying you need a therapy for couples 
in which they learn to accept and appreciate the differences between them <clears throat> rather than feeling resentful about what is different and seeing it as a liability. You know, my, you know, my, like my wife can say, well, he's not as adventurous as I am. And I need a man who is really as adventurous as I am. I need somebody to come with me to Everest. But my wife's not like that. She says, you know, you know, I can do that with these 10 other women. I don't need you to be the same as me, but I need you to understand why that's important to me. I need you to accept that fact that I'm different from you and you will not only tolerate it, but you'll really be my friend and support it and understand it and cherish me for those qualities. Well, that's a whole form of therapy that's really based on acceptance. Most therapy is based on trying to get me and my partner to be the same <laughs> and negotiating those differences so that they don't exist. And this acceptance therapy really fits with KK Tung, who says, well, as conflict avoiders, you look at the math, they have the most resilient, stable relationships. I may be biased in that this is my show and I decided to use that bit of audio, but I really think that that's great advice. Advice that we could all benefit from following. But once again, I may be biased. I would love it though, if y'all could accept that about me. Before we run the credits, I want to put in just a little bit more of my conversation with Andrea Salenzi. After we finished talking about her Skype date experiment, we started just chatting about mathematics and dating. I think the things that we talked about while being super off the cuff are really interesting. And by the end, we came up with such a wonderful math-based dating scheme, I would feel awful if I didn't share it with you. And if you try it, please let me know. So the probability that the next date you go on is going to be, you know, the one and like a lasting, like important person in your life, that probability can't change I always wonder if that probability can change by, like, how recently you went on another date if you, like, there's nothing that can change the probability of that, right? I'm, see, this, it's, this is something where math... It's consistently probable that it, that could be it I, not it. I actually would guess that that's not true. I would bet it's conditionally probable. Because I think, um, and, and this, is, this is me doing armchair psychology as a mathematician, uh, I think that... If you have recently been on a bad date, I think that you are more likely to consider uh, the next date good. Uh, and I think that that could very much affect, because I, I, I think that it depends a, a lot on your mood and on the day of the week. I bet that there's a different probability if you meet the person on a Tuesday than if you meet them on a Friday. I, I, I think that if you're willing to go out if you've convinced yourself to go out on a date with someone on a Tuesday, you might actually be more likely to have a lasting relationship with them than on a Friday. Because a Friday is just a date night. It could mean that you just are kind of lonely and you don't want to be alone on a Friday. Whereas if you're on a Tuesday, you're like, eh, it's kind of, it's a work night. You don't necessarily need to be out. But you've decided, you've convinced yourself before the date that this person is worth it. So I, I would think that it's probably not actually consistently probable, but very conditional on your mood and also how the recent dates have been going. Huh. So someone were to write, um, to try to write, um, an equation to term determine the ultimate 
um, day and recency of another date and mood, uh, they could probably, to like the ideal time and like circumstances of a date, they could keep track of all their information in a document and say like Tuesday, like coming off a good date, coming off a bad date, um, mood was good and like try to find a trend. Yeah, if would that be like a reasonable human thing to do? I I personally think that it would. Uh, but uh, we've already established I'm mildly insane. So <laughs> I, I think that it would not be unreasonable. Uh, you also would have to uh, assume that any trend you find is going to be very, very noisy and unlikely to actually predict anything because the difference in the probability might be very slight. Uh, and in, it's, it's one of those things where it, even if you're a person who dates a lot, uh, even if you're one of these people who does like go on a date every single day, there's still you still just might not generate enough data, mm. and because you also would have to uh, have multiple extended relationships in order to be able to predict when those are going to happen, and the more of those you have, the less overall data you're going to have because an extended relationship has to take time. Huh. So the the. I think that the most powerful thing a person could do when dating is to create um, a rule for themselves so they have a placebo effect. That you, know, I I would be willing to say that the placebo effect would be more effective than uh, trying to find your own equation. Definitely. So if you go on the days when I have a new dress, I go on better dates, and then you just really believe that <laughs> you just like buy a lot of dresses. Or if you say if I date on a, if you come up with a rule that kind of seems like it's true based on your dates to date then following that strictly and like but believing in it wholeheartedly will probably increase your likelihood i i would huh. i would guess that that's probably true once again it's a guess but that's that it, it's from what i know of human psychology pretty probable if okay cupid said sam we love your podcast please design you have here is all of our data please design your perfect experiment do you have anything that you'd want to call from all that i would love to scrape their uh their connection and so uh, a lot of a lot of okcupid uh data will be statistical in nature because it's it's just a lot of um you know how many how many messages uh how many times that they contact and, and things like that what i would really love to know and i don't know if they have this data what i would love to know is the actual network of um of people who uh actually meet in real life uh which if that's not possible then the network of of people who have sent messages back and forth at least like five times each as a you know just a stand-in for essentially meeting in real life and then to actually see the network graph because i really suspect but i'm not sure that uh, okay cupid is kind of incestuous in a way in that the people who date people on OkCupid end up just all dating each other. Like there's these weird groups of people who essentially just date within each other, but they don't know that they're a group. Yes. And and I really want to test if that's true. Oh, it's so true though. <laughs> you just, I feel like I really, I really see it because it's like the people who are dating the most frequently in that geographic area will no doubt run into each other. Well, and they're probably like, People have types and like, I'm just guessing that uh, 
if you're if you're dating one, you know, super like super liberal creative type, you're probably going to be dating more super liberal creative types. So you're you're creating these weird clusters of personality type just on who is deciding to message those people and it might be a very interesting way of actually grouping uh making personality groupings together. Hmm. And also it, I feel like it could help people meet people if there was some kind of like a mingle event where magically everyone was available and they could kind of see these relationships play out and then they all brought their single friends. So social network uh, social network theory leveraged speed dating. Mm-hmm. I I don't I don't hate that idea. <laughs> Hello, this is Paul from Baltimore, and that's all the time we have for this episode of Relatively Prime. I would like to thank Stacey Molsky, Brett Miles, Jill Fisher, Kevin Monroe, Andrea Salenzi, Sam Yagen, Matt Parker, and John Gottman for appearing on the show. If you'd like to know more about them, please go to relprime.com and check out the show notes for this episode. I also want to thank the musicians Lowercase N, Beaks, Hard and Firm, and Broke for Free for the music that you heard. You can also find links to more music from them on relprime.com. Relatively Prime is a production of Acne Science and Samuel Hansen with support from all of his backers on Kickstarter, who, like me, believe in the power of good storytelling to bring mathematics to life. If you'd like to help support Relatively Prime, head over to the website and click the support button. And trust me, Samuel would be very happy if you did. You can also head over to iTunes and leave a rating and a review. That's how their algorithm decides rankings, and the higher Rel Prime is ranked, the more people will see the show. If you have any feedback or you just want to say hello to Samuel, you can send him an email at his personal email account. Really, this is his everyday email account, samuel at acmescience.com. Finally, Relatively Prime is licensed with a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike license, so please feel free to remix Samuel's voice to say whatever you like as long as you say that those words originally came from Relatively Prime. Thank you for listening, and have a mathorific week. Hey, it's Sam. Just popping in here at the end to remind you that we are currently running the Kickstarter to raise the money to produce Season 3 of Relatively Prime. It'll be a little bit different than this season. It's going to be monthly. 12 episodes of mathematics content, one each month for the next year. Think about it. You could have wonderful mathematical stories like the ones you heard today about mathematics and dating and relationships and marriage every month for the next year. All you have to do is head over to relprime.com slash kickstarter and kick in a few bucks. And you can get awesome rewards like pins or notebooks or your chance to say have me do your chores for a day or a weekend or, or whatever really. If you give if you give quite a bit of money, I, w- I will do that. I promise you. It, it'll be wonderful. I'll even cook you dinner. And I, I am really good at that. So head over to relprime.com slash kickstarter or just search Relatively Prime in Kickstarter and give a few bucks and get some rewards and know that you are helping make more wonderful 
mathematical stories for so many more people to hear. Thank you so much, and I can't wait to see your name pop up in my inbox saying that you just backed Relatively Prime Season 3.